Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. And I'm your other host, Chris. And Rye, I'm your biggest fan. Da, da, da. Are you going to hobble me now? <laughs> uh, no, no. Because you live in New York City. New York City, even though, even though it's... Even though it's it's snow, it's you're snowed in, and it's still COVID. There's still lots of places you, you can go to. All in New the York places City. you'll like, go. Yeah, we have that dirty, disgusting New York snow happening right now. Like none of it's clean anymore. It's disgu- It's gross. Snow in New York is beautiful for one day. <laughs> for for one day only. One day only. Uh, speaking of snow, it snowed. Yesterday, two days ago, yeah, it, I'm so sick of snow. Uh, so, in honor of that, we are following up with another uh, snow apocalypse, claustrophobic, trapped in your own house type of movie. Yes, and it's also another Stephen King film or Stephen Stephen King adaptation. Last week we uh, we covered The Shining. Last week, Chris tore The Shining a new one. <laughs> I, I I admit I was very cranky because I was very tired. But like, I am gonna stand by my opinion. I you, you know I don't know the if... episode and think to yourself maybe I was a little harsh. No, I I no don't no don't tape back. Own it. Own your opinions. Uh, speak your truth. Uh, so the. Yeah, we were very harsh on The Shining, but I stand by what I said. Um, and I don't, I'm not on Twitter. I'm on, I'm on Instagram. So if you would listen to it and at me, well, I'd, I regret nothing. But that being said, uh, uh, last week was The Shining. And this week is Misery. And I never, I never, uh, I guess I never considered the parallels between the two until doing research for uh for for tonight and uh yeah i mean the shining and misery share a lot of similarities but i will say you know i'm bearing the lead misery uh clearly my favorite of the two and clearly i think the superior stephen king adaptation and i i i know i mean i know how important the shining is uh especially and i know how much like the kubrick fans love it and how it's you know just critically acclaimed across the board but i had so much fun watching misery i don't again similar to the shining i literally don't remember the last time i've watched it maybe it was you know on cable reruns but this is the first time i watched it in a very very long time so it's basically most of the movie was refreshed to me and like i found true glee and mirth it's like a complete 180 degree from the shining so it it's good to have like a movie that it it gives you good feels and it's not as problematic in its production as the shining which is nice to hear about or read about too so yeah i love misery i i watch it pretty regularly i also read the book and i think we touched i think i touched on this at the end of last week's episode in an effort to sort of just hype you up a little bit because i know that 
af- coming off of The Shining that there are much better Stephen King adaptations out there, and this is definitely one of them. Um, even the change that they made from the book to the movie, I I don't think it took away from anything. I it's almost like more horrifying the way she does it. So yeah, the hobbling scene, and yeah. and uh, we'll we'll get into it. But uh, the director, Rob Reiner, yes, Rob Reiner, who also directed. Stand by Me, which is another amazing film in general, but also a great Stephen King adaptation. Like I did not know that uh, until doing research today, which is probably another reason why I love the movie because like his style is so cool. But uh, there was a very specific reason why he changed the context and the execution of the hobbling, and it made such perfect sense. Uh, and it made it was very a very calculated well thought out reason why it changed it it's like this, and it's like wow this this is a great example of how to adapt source material into a different way into a new way mm-hmm. and still elevate it still honor it but also you know you know create a uh unique vision and like you know that move that scene is it's horrifying it's amazing and you know 100 percent was a really like a powerful linchpin and netting this movie with its with this Oscar, uh, I mean, um, Kathy Bates won uh, Best Actress uh, for for that her role, and I believe it's the only Stephen King film to ever have won the Oscars. I believe you're right. So I watched this movie twice, like for this episode, which I've watched. I've watched other movies more times before an episode. I'll I'll preface it, but the only reason why I only watched it twice. Was and I didn't tell Chris I was doing this because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do it. I actually also watched the entire second season of Castle Rock before today. That's that's rad. I mean, I I barely had time to watch this movie. Like, I I I completely I completely I completely deleted the 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 information of my own head. Like, because I, I know Castle Rock is a great show. I completely forgot, like, season two is like, all about Annie, Annie Wilkes, uh, when she's much younger. And then when I was doing research, I was like, oh, yeah, that was a thing. And, oh, no, I have less than an hour left. There's no way I can finish the series, so. <laughs> no, it's ten episodes, and they're all, like, an hour apiece. Like, there's no way. Here's the thing. What you couldn't see while Chris was saying all of that was that I was making faces at him because I loved Castle Rock season one. I think that the idea of what they were going for was really unique and awesome and just a different way to look at Stephen King and his universe that he's created. However, evidently, Abrams and King always knew that the show was going to end with Annie Wilkes, which I have no issue with. What I have an issue with was the fact that it came so soon. Maybe Annie Wilkes popped up in season two because they knew they were getting canceled. I don't know. That being said, I did not like season two. Really? No, I really... I haven't seen season two, but, like, that's surprising to say, because, like, season one... Was so strong. Yeah, yeah, so, I don't know. None of those people show up in season two. Interesting. There's, like, brief mentions to season one, but that being said, despite the fact that I truly did not enjoy it, I thought that Lizzie Kaplan's performance as Annie Wilkes was stunning. And... She did such an incredible job of just completely embodying, like, I truly believed that she was a young Annie Wilkes. They made her 
a little bit sympathetic, like more sympathetic than I would have liked. Well, the film does that too. I don't feel sorry for Annie Wilkes in Misery. I don't, there is not one part of me that feels sorry for that woman. Well, obviously it's, uh, it's, she's the villain, but like as part of the slow burn, like especially, especially the first 30 minutes, it like, it like plays with the audience. It's like, okay, is Annie mentally ill or does she have like bipolar disorder? Or is she, or does she have like major, major depression? Or is she actually like a psychotic killer? And then you, you fully get that reveal. Oh, she's actually a serial killer. She's actually, uh, she's, she's killed babies and, uh, el the elderly as a nurse and she's full crazy. But like it, 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 uh, obviously, you know, full stop, like, uh, in the movie Misery or, um, any misery, she is completely unhinged and she like i think she obviously she has mental some types of mental health issue but she's also cognizant of what she's doing she knows what she's doing is wrong and but she, and but in her head it's still right and um but like at least in the first 30 minutes like the film tries to paint her as sympathetic and it gives you like this at least the, the viewer in doubt like okay what's going on with her maybe maybe She's acting strange, but, you know, she might have some mental health issues. And two, like, she's, um, you know, a fan of the author, which is a whole other thing to unpack. And, like, the author's work, you know, might have helped her through a really hard time. She specifically cited in the movie, like, she worked nights a lot. And she got, she started reading and reading his books made her problems go away and it's like okay so maybe she's maybe she's had it rougher than much but like can you blame someone for 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 like quote unquote being a fan and loving you know your or loving or praising your idol because they got you through a tough spot as a person that has done that to someone i i get that i get that i get yeah yeah but but then but then that's that's like that's like the prelude to like a whole bunch of under like darker stuff. Like, uh, it's a greater commentary on like toxic fandom, uh, or uh, uh, and of, and of course you know a para the parasocial, even sort of one sided parasitic relationship when it comes to really really crazy fans and like whoever they're admiring from. So obviously in the end we shouldn't sympathize with Annie. But in the beginning, it does it does play devil's advocate of like trying to you know like okay maybe maybe we should sympathize and at the end of course it's like oh no she's she's straight up villain so but I do like the I I do like the cat and mouse play in the beginning like it made it for a great experience no it does and they absolutely play with that uh, over the course of Castle Rock season two which I thought was really awesome the beginning starts out like. It's this mother and daughter thing, and yep, she's got a daughter in this one. Um, spoiler alert, completely dead by the end of the season by Annie's own hand. And don't at me for that, for spoiling it. I, I, I warned you. There were a couple of things that helped tie in the universe that they built for Castle Rock Season 2 and Misery the Movie. They kept the way her father died, minus the career choice. There is a newspaper clipping in her memory lane book that says that her father died from a freak accident from falling down the stairs. And that's exactly how he died in Castle Rock. So it's like those little, those little teeny tiny things. 
However, what I loved was that in the process of her leaving behind the events of Castle Rock and trying to start anew with her daughter, she finds the misery books, which differs a little bit from how she found them in the movie, but I sort of like took that with a grain of salt. The way they ended it, I thought was kind of cool, but it also pissed me off. So I'm going to take your temperature on this. They end season two with Annie Wilkes at a book signing and a book reading by Paul Sheldon. She's never met him in misery. It never happened. Is that, is that, true in the book because i haven't read the book but like, i don't remember if it happened in the book i read the book a while ago i don't remember then how did she get then how okay well i guess i mean there's there's probably a million ways she she could have gotten it um but she does well at least in the movie i don't know about the tv show but in the movie she does have a signed photo of Paul Sheldon. Maybe that's how she. Oh, yeah, because you know she has like a she has like a mini altar of of, of misery books, and then she has like the photo, uh. and then there's like an autograph, like best wishes, Paul Sheldon. So I assumed that that tracks to me. Oh, so okay. Actually, that tracks then because they so that sort of makes the same jump that they do with the newspaper article with the accident and her father and everything like that. So, all right, so I, I, I retract my peeveness. But what I really love about the way they establish that, first of all, you never get, you just see a hand, like, right before he starts to read. He never speaks. Like, it was done perfectly. But what I really, really love is as she's sitting there, um, she's talking to her daughter who's not really there, and she's saying, oh, do you think he'll sign something for us? And she goes, oh, I don't know, but I sure hope he does. I'm his number one fan. And the camera pans out and you see she's not at, she's sitting next to an empty chair with the book on it and Paul Sheldon's about to start and then it ends. And I was like, yes, because those are the first words you hear from Annie in Misery is I'm your number one fan. And it's just chef's kiss. Uh, yeah, easily I had the best reaction from watching the entirety of watching those last like five minutes of Castle Rock season two, which does not say very much. I mean, that that stinks because like, I, uh, I, mean, I mean, season one. They just tried to do too much, really? I think. Mm. Like, yeah, I just, I felt like there was, I could sort of get behind the connections they were trying to make in season one, but some of the connections they were trying to make in season two, I just couldn't get behind and I couldn't buy. I was like, what the, what the fuck is this? Mm. So... That being said, and I will get to this later, you brought up Annie Wilkes and mental illness and her being a serial killer and all of that. There is, and I want to wait till the right time for this, because everybody who's listened to the show before knows I love true crime. Well, just... No, right, we know, we, we, we know you want to talk about it right now. You were texting me, or messaging me, you were, you were doing work and studying up on true crime right before we recorded so you know you did all this research just just drop it right now so i'm gonna drop it right now okay so the real life inspiration behind annie wilkes as a character um technically her classification as a serial killer would be an angel of death um and angels of death there have been multiple like male and female they're not just female these are people in the world of medicine who use their status as a caregiver to kill people the in the real life inspiration behind who annie wilkes was was a very famous angel of death nurse named Janine Jones, who is still alive and behind bars to this day in Texas. She was supposed to get out and ended up not, thankfully, 
And the next time she will be up for parole and be eligible to be out, she will be 89 years old. How long has she been in prison? She got sentenced to 99 years in prison in 1985. Ah, uh, so... Oh, wait, am I doing my math wrong? Is it, isn't it 40 years? No, it's, it's like it's no, less than 40 years, long, but it's, it's more than 30. Okay, I can't do math. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I can't either. That's why I just agreed with you because I assumed you were right. No, I, I never trust me on math. <laughs> so this I thought was interesting. For I, First of all, this book, just as like a little tidbit, I'll cut this out. I love because it's so fucking detailed. They have all of these mugshots and like yearbook photos of all of these female serial killers with little tidbits next to them. And this is Janine Jones, the Angel of Death, remembered by classmates as a bossy and obnoxious know-it-all. Jones is believed to have murdered as many as in Texas. Transferring through several hospitals, Jones, although a junior nurse, dominated hospital and clinical pediatric units until leaving a trail of dead children behind while staff praised her for her uncanny ability to recognize infants on the brink of cardiac crisis several hours in advance. Nobody suspected a thing until it was too late. So, and I know, I yeah, I know Annie in the book, she not only killed infants, she also killed the elderly as well. So did Janine Jones. Janine, she, she, like Annie, was put behind bars for the death of an infant. Mm -hmm. And I know in the film, I think it only, I think it mostly centered on Annie killing infants. Cause I don't remember reading or remember seeing like newspaper clippings about like mysterious deaths of, of the elderly. But I know, I know in the book. Yeah. Well, not the elderly, but in the newspaper clippings, there's always, and I noticed this the second time. I don't know why I didn't notice it the first time or the first million other times that I saw this movie. Every single time something happens, you can always assume Annie did it because the accomplishment that she had is right next to it. So the nursing student that got top honors mysteriously fell off a cliff and then Annie got top honors at her school. Oh, a local yeah. well-known pediatrician fell ill and died in the hospital and all of a sudden Annie is now like in that unit oh so she she killed her way to upward mobility oh okay i totally missed that okay interesting it's it was it's so quick as paul sheldon is like combing through all of this i cannot believe it took me until this watch to notice all of it but her bouncing from hospital to hospital is not uncommon with angels of death it's usually what happens before they get caught Something suspicious happens that will cause them to move, but because the hospital doesn't want to look negligent like we let this happen, we'll just let her go so when another hospital calls for a reference, they can just say she left, not she was fired, which is how these people still keep getting hired and keep getting jobs. Seems like a really, really gross negligence oh, from, a, from a systematic and bureaucratic nature. That's that seems way that is, seems so irresponsible. It is, and it's how they it's how Angels of Death operated for as long as they did. Like her crime spanned 1970 to 19 what 82. So between all that time, she was moving from hospitals to hospitals and like going from the elderly to infants and all that. And that's how they work their way through and killing their way through, or at the very least injuring their way through. 
So yeah, I wasn't excited to talk about Jeannie Jones like at all. Um, I'll probably put a blog post when the episode goes up on Friday, just to get a little bit more into it. I love true crime. It's not a secret. I just thought that it was really fascinating that she was the inspiration for Annie Wilkes and how well that that sort of tracks with everything. So pretty rad. Annie's a uh, a complex character. I mean, I mean, obviously she has um a lot of real world and she's got weird isms. Yeah, she has a lot of isms, and she has like a lot of like different type of I guess muses. I mean, you you have a uh, uh, true crime uh, that's definitely a muse uh what i found really fascinating is how autobiographical annie is and th- i mean this, it's not it's not really news i mean stephen king writes himself a lot into his books and his works and annie in particular annie was like a product of his struggles with drug abuse and substance abuse um because he he framed he framed his drug use or his dependency on drugs as both something that like could like ease the pain which totally tracks from a literary and symbolic level uh cuz you cuz misery or I'm sorry Al, uh Annie does the same for Paul but also the drugs are really really destructive which is also um similar and the fact that drugs aka annie put stephen king into a prison like an escapable prison of his own making and there there's that aspect and i um i think the book goes a lot heavier into the destructive drug abuse stuff um and, and the, if i remember correctly paul in the book he's been sober but he's been sober pretty recently like he he's had like a long string of drug abuse uh substance abuse and he really he recently you know kicked kicked the habit but uh he relapsed because annie was feeding him all the pills which is basically a fictional version of codeine um or a painkiller as an opiate and even and the book the book was treated his resolution or his denouement in a much more nihilistic fashion um because even though he escaped he developed like a sort of ptsd he relapsed into drugs and alcoholism um and he even suffered like a long bout or a long period of time where he had complete writer's block um and he couldn't write anything else uh, I mean, we don't really see that drug abuse as much. Oh, well, obviously, like, uh, movie Paul got fed all the drugs, but... Well, she keeps giving him... Yeah, yeah. but, like, he... We don't, we don't see a degree of, like, true drug dependency at, or as intense as the book does. And, you know, in the epilogue of the film, Paul seems well adjust like relatively well adjusted i mean obviously he he envisions uh or hallucinates the waitress at the end as annie and he's he definitely has scars he's definitely thinking about annie but it doesn't seem as anywhere as severe as the state of play where paul was in the book for some strange reason in the i'm getting that while i'm watching it i'm getting this very vivid memory of the way Stephen King describes the taste of the medicine when Paul Sheldon puts it in his mouth in the book. There was just something about the way he was describing, like, the coding 
and the metallic taste, like something about the t- there's something in there that like every single time in the movie she hands him those pills, my mouth has like this weird taste in it. Like I don't I don't know what it is. It's psychosomatic symptoms. <laughs> Your brain makes it real. It's so it's so weird. There are only like two things that I really remember about the book, and it was the original hobbling scene that wasn't hobbling and the way he describes the coating of those pills tasting there's and maybe it was some combination of her like shoving her fingers in his mouth to like force feed him the pills and the coating of the there's just something about the way he wrote that that like always sticks out in my brain so every time i see those stupid little bright orange pills in the movie my mouth just ends up having this like weird taste and it's like all I can remember. And that's also just the beauty of Stephen King's writing, right? Like that's what I remember is like a description of just something so, you know, I mean, eventually in the book, it's how he like tracks everything and like knows she sort of has a brief uh, nod to that in the film when she says, well, your pain, the way it comes is like clockwork. It's because of the pills. And he learns like how he learns to sort of like in between each pill that he comes in and that she comes in to give him how long he has in between to like hide the pills and that becomes a thing in the book as well as the movie but i it doesn't seem as it's not as concentrated on because he's not narrating it like we're not in in the bedroom with him like in his head yeah yeah I do truly enjoy this movie so much yeah this movie's great does it make up for last week it it really does. It really does. And um, like the other thing, I re- like I, I I was watching some YouTube documentaries, and uh, there, there's this video posted by Ryan Hollinger, and it really opened my eyes. I think this is one of the most fascinating things about misery, and I didn't, I've never considered this before until today, and it's a really great point. But he was remarking how misery is a reflection of Stephen King's frustrations as a writer and it's also like a meta commentary on fandom and it, there was a, this is a really interesting background context where Stephen King at one point in time he decided to write a fantasy novel i i found i found this bit of background context like pretty sad and depressing the other main inspiration for misery came out of this kind of unfortunate act of toxic fandom honestly where uh in 1984 uh he wrote i believe it's like a complete it's like a epic fan epic high fantasy novel uh kind of like the vein of like tolkien uh it was called eyes of the dragon and and uh it was a fa- it was an epic fantasy book and while it was received pretty well by critics and reviewers uh, among Stephen King's uh, normal fans, they either hated it or he got a lot of flack for it because it wasn't a horror book, uh, and it wasn't what they expected, or, or or it wasn't up to their. It didn't fit their expectations of him as like such a prolific horror and psychological thriller writer. And there's like this really poignant and eye-opening uh, news interview where Stephen King was talking about uh, the origins of misery and he was saying how well I I never I never said I was outright a horror writer or a psychological thriller 
Um, I'm only a person who likes to write books, and and, and I try not to ascribe uh, or, or try not to give weight to the val uh, to the labels they do or don't give me. Which is, I mean, that's a very diplomatic answer to to say what well, while you're on TV while the cameras are rolling. But I can't imagine how frustrating it would be to you know bu- build a career a of bu- of whatever art, whatever form. And let's say you're like Stephen King and you you wrote like really good horror and thriller novels or maybe you're a movie director and you may you, you cut your teeth and you got your big break directing one type of genre film maybe may, or what type of movie genre maybe maybe it's comedy maybe it's horror maybe it's action whatever uh, and for you to be pigeonholed by your own fans, it's so paradoxical and I think, uh, what's the word? Diaclet or not, uh, yeah, let's go paradoxical because like you owe every, like on one hand, like without your fans who are so loving and passionate of your work, um, uh, you know, and they spend their hard earned dollars on, um, you know, on your work like you're able to have a living you're able to afford to continue what you're doing like and you're 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 able to have a career based on the arts uh which not everyone can do not everyone has the luxury and it's um it's a it's i think it's an honor and a privilege but at the same time like yes it's a it's a career yes you do make money of it but you go you you pursue the arts as a career because like you have a love for the medium. It's it's still like an expression of yourself uh, and your proclivities and your sensibilities. So in a just society, Stephen King, 100%, you know, he shouldn't have to defend himself or defend his reasons why he wants to write a fantasy novel or, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely not. It's it it's really unfortunate. I, you, we see this all the time in the horror community too, right? Like you're not a real fan unless you like this. That that's all bullshit. Yeah. And and, uh, and uh, it's I think that's like the that's so crushing because like what what do you what do you say to your fans? Yeah. And, and what's what's ironic about it? Like he took all those frustrations of like toxic fandomness. And to channel that those experiences he had trying to trying to you know try something new, he ended up writing another horror novel, which is like a metal a complete meta commentary on all the toxic fandom. Like like Annie Annie as a character is representative of a uh, the most toxic of fans where they feel entitled to they they have like this grandiose sense of entitlement. And access to the author because they're quote unquote the number one fan. So therefore, they should they have they feel like they have the right to criticize in a completely unconstructive, unproductive way of what the uh, what the the writer's trying to do on future projects. Um, they feel that they are the end all be all. Um, so like, you know, Annie was picking out, oh, no, 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 misery can't die. That's such a terrible ending. Oh, no, 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 this can't happen because in book seven, paragraph C, this happened. So, no, do it again. And I have like a love hate relationship with that because I'm that asshole when something happens in the movie and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing in the book? Blah, 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 blah. Like, I've done that before. 
but not obviously to the like i don't have the author sitting in my living room and me like correcting him on that yeah and and it's like from a literal space and from a from a symbolic base you know Paul, or aka Steven, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you could you could apply this to like other anecdotes, like the 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 really, really low-hanging fruit you could compare this to is the Star Wars fandom, where like George Luke, like for 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 years, like the original trilogy was hailed as like the pinnacle of all Star Wars uh, you know, fiefdom. It's like it is untouchable, it's it's great. And, you know, fans wanted more. And then so George Lucas is like, okay, I'll give you more. And then so he gave us the the prequel trilogy. And the fans are like, no, 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 no. We wanted more, but we didn't want that. That's horrible. And and then George Lucas got crucified. And like it I and then and he's like, okay, then he's then he sold he sold Star Wars. Um and then and then it was under Disney or J.J. Abrams or Kathleen Kennedy. And and then the new trilogy, the fans, like, they didn't know what they wanted. It's like, it's like, they're like, they're like, oh, yes, this movie was too much like the original, but not different enough. And then Last Jedi was way too different. And then, and then, the, and, it's, and it's like, you know, you don't, you guys are like, you know, being hypocritical and... You guys are being crazy and insane, and you're, you're throwing death threats at people, literally. I think Chris has some feelings <laughs> no. about the most recent Star Wars movies, guys. <laughs> no, no, I, I could, you know, I, I'm a, I'm not, I'm, I'm a casual Star Wars fan, but like, I just, like, from a sociological standpoint, I just, I like, it's like my liberal arts, my, my liberal arts brain, it has been unlocked because, like, I find myself so fascinated by the phenomenon of like fandom because i am a true fan or i am a fan you know and it's like it's like it's it's like shit this 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 movie this movie's like 30 years old and like steve and or maybe it's i don't know maybe i think it's 30 years old this movie's old and it's like holy shit like you can apply all these to like anything today like anime or horror star wars anything else like it's crazy well yeah even but even think about the fact that for decades, Stephen King was terrified to acknowledge that this movie was even about substance abuse to begin with. Like, he never talked about it until, like, very recently he was like, oh, yeah, it's about substance abuse. And he, like, decided to open up and, and be honest about that. And it's probably because he was afraid about the, the fan perception. I mean, I, I have to tell you, for speaking as fans... There's a lot of shit that we love about a lot of directors and, and artists out there. But yeah, we have been known to get pissy when they do something that kind of rubs us the wrong way. But I think there's a difference between something like what Chris and I do, which is sort of bitch about it on a podcast, versus like incessantly tweet at these people and then send them death threats because they're not doing something to your liking or you're, are you, you hobble, hobble the, creator, the creator you know yes write it again <laughs> so i think it's funny just to sort of bounce it back to last week's episode on the shining really quick jack nicholson was offered the role of sheldon and he turned it down. He's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do another Stephen King film after Kubrick. Because he was so afraid. And it, like, let's be honest, Stanley Kubrick's name was nowhere near it. But that didn't matter. It it moved him the wrong way enough 
that he was like, no, I'm not doing this again. It's 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 interesting because like the the like misery is a comment. Well, it's a partial commentary on like toxic fandom and like in a in a way like The Shining is like about toxic creators because like yeah. like Jack Jack is also trying to be a writer. Jack's also played by his inner demons, whether it's alcoholism or some screwed up sense of masculinity or just he's just he refuses to go to therapy whatever reason but like and then he goes literally batshit insane and tries to kill his family and then and then even even beyond that like regardless of how much how great uh or how talented or how prolific kubrick a director was like he put people through hell so another strange meta or art imitating life or life imitating art kind of deal where like the creator can be toxic too let's get into that scene the hobbling yes we've been putting it off and it's almost it's it's like the it's like the capstone it really is so i was watching the second time i was watching this shortly before we started recording i was watching it on the couch with tom and tom all of a sudden i watch him like adjust his position and i notice that his arm is placed in front of his face and i thought he was like trying to take a nap and i know what's coming and i said what 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 are you doing i was like are you skewing your view so that you don't have to watch the hobbling he was like yeah. look at the tv look at the tv tom <laughs> right right and i was like you do realize it's like worse in the book right She's like, he's like yep it, no yeah. i know and I, well i mean it is and it isn't though right it, it's it's they're, they're horrifying for like two different reasons yeah exactly they're each horrifying for their own reasons so in the movie as we all know kathy bates hobbles Paul Sheldon. So she puts a um a, a thing of wood, a plank of wood in between his legs and breaks both of his ankles. Oh my god, that first shot where like you could see the the ankle like and like the leg move in the oh, opposite yeah. direction. Like oh, oh, good. like I, I I haven't seen like a behind the scenes commentary, but like I haven't I either and I, I tried I to look for one. Yeah, I'm really curious how they filmed that because that it looks so real. I was like, oh <laughs> if anybody out there can give me just like I don't care if I have to buy it so I can watch it. Just like tell me where I can find it. Tell me if it exists because I have to know how they did that. In the book, she comes in with an axe and chops off his foot. And then cauterizes it with a blowtorch. Yeah. Oh yeah. So you said at the beginning of the episode that Rob Reiner had a really interesting and unique reason for why he decided to change that scene. Yeah, like, so when it comes down to it, Rob Reiner, he still wanted to play that devil's advocate sort of feeling when with the audience trying to gauge out what kind of character Annie was. What's killer about everything in this film too, though, and what sort of keeps you guessing as to how ill or damaged Annie actually is, is how like unnervingly sweet she is in between all of this. It's obviously from a place of like, like nativity almost, uh, the, the way she quote unquote curses, and the way she speaks, the way she carries herself, that idea that she could have lived such a sheltered life before becoming who she was sort of only adds to the sympathy you feel for her. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so so it, it like one of the main reasons he preserved or he 
switch the hobbling scene was one which obviously I, I think this makes sense um he thought the scene was too graphic for the film um and i think i think when the, at the time when the movie was released um if that were, were to be shown on screen it would probably got like like banned or might might have got cut out or might have got like an nc-17 rating which is fine i mean obviously like now like 20 30 years later you know where we had films like hostel and other types of torture porn films or saw that that i feel like most people at least, at least horror fans uh wouldn't really bat an eye as much as that type of graphic imagery because we've you know it's it's we've got we've gone to the point where we can like handle it quote unquote um but i think the more interesting reason is why they changed it because they want uh they uh william goldman uh wanted to preserve the audience's sympathy for annie which i thought was very interesting because like she's still clearly a villain but it's still riding on that narrative arc where is is annie's justification for fulfilling whatever loneliness or loss or depression is that valid and uh i mean does it excuse her i mean obviously it doesn't but like um it, it just makes the the audience question like like she's obviously channeling like it in a completely destructive wrong way but what's motivating her is it is it like some deeply profound type of loss is it mental illness is it toxic fandom is it like a warped sense of love it, it could be all of the above uh, or or she's just straight up psycho crazy which is also a valid a um interpretation but i i like i really found it so interesting that they wanted to keep that three-dimensional emotional depth to her character and they it, it crystallizes into this monumental but still equally as horrifying change the hobbling scene and then the other the other reason why they changed it is because the the misery novels were set it's like a victorian novel but set in the american south those covers the trashy romance novels that you find at target yes exactly. like the danielle Steele novels exactly. that's what that looked like but i wasn't supposed to it was, it was like historical fiction and let's be honest annie wilkes would not be caught dead reading a trashy romance novel because that has actual sex in it yeah i mean we don't really get neat like into the weeds of like uh like the entire like misery arc i mean they they reference it a bit but it was enough and they, they were also citing how at least some of the america uh, at least some of the uh misery novels were taking were, were taking place during like the uh during like the jim, jim crow area like during and, and like the southern colonies southern plantations where slavery was still a very much a thing and so that you know and they recontextualize hobbling as a practice to purposely handicap slaves so they can still work. Uh, and it's like, it's still horrifying, not because like it's you physically see it on screen, but it's also something that I'm sure, maybe not in the exact way, but I'm sure some form of that has actually happened in the past. I'm sure there was some form of it as a quote unquote common practice. Yeah, which is still when it's still it's, horrifying. It's like historical oh, it's horror. Complete. But that is also why Annie Wilkes is one of those villains 
that is one of the most horrifying on screen is because of how human she is. She is arguably Stephen King's most horrifying human villain that he's ever painted because some of the most of the stuff that he does is very supernatural or in the case of Cujo is an animal or car or or, or <laughs> car. So I think that that says a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of the praise for like the source material in this movie is that Stephen King created a truly terrifying novel with basically really human characters with massive flaws and it didn't really rely on any supernatural fantasy elements and it's kind of one of those films or books where all monsters are human yeah and in the, the story in the setting of the story it's kind of like elevated reality but this could totally happen i mean she really shows you the sort of depth of human depravity in a way she could have actually done the things that she said if the storm was that bad she could have tried to phone the hospital or if she had gotten into town she could have she could have actually done all of those things what makes her the villain is that how smoothly she lies about it and how she didn't actually do any of those things because she wants to keep her favorite author. But Kathy Bates really sold that performance, though. She did. But even thinking about the fact that she was like, sometimes the rain gives me the blues and just like how low she was. Uh, it, an argue, A very valid argument could be made that she suffered from bipolar disorder. Now, we never saw her take anything for it, but... It, the highs and lows that she sort of that we watch her sort of experience over the course of the film can sort of be explained by bipolar disorder. But that scene where she comes in and she is talking about how the rain sometimes gives her the blues and she's got the gun in her hand and she's like, you're going to leave soon anyway because the snow because your legs are getting better and the snow's melting and she like goes out into the rain and and. The next time you see her, she's just a totally different person, which, again, could sort of validate that argument. But the fact that she pulls the gun out of her coat and says, I might put bullets in this and walks away. And the look of sheer terror on his face, like, are, are you coming? Are you coming back? Am I stuck here? Like, no one will find me. Yeah, I know in the book. It didn't happen in that scene, but I know in the book, there's a scene where she reads the draft of the book he completed and she hated it so much she left the house for two days and he was left alone for two days without food or water and then she came back and then she made him burn the manuscript this movie brought great joy the performances in all of this are just so good i mean you even you even get lauren bacall in there for about five minutes not even Maybe five minutes total. Yeah, ever everyone in this everyone in this movie was like on on high cylinders, uh, and like obviously, and like Kathy Bates definitely deserved that Oscar because she she was she played so she has such an intense range and she played like the unhinged parts so well and so convincing and yeah and it was just it was such a joy just to watch her work and transform and see how different and how how wildly different she can be in like the span of two scenes which you know gives credence to whether or not annie had bipolar or not i mean that makes for a great case but and obviously we're not mental mental health professionals but it, it seems a pretty convincing depiction um and it's just that just shows how much Kathy Bates was amazing and um yeah and I, I enjoyed the rest of the cast. The cast was just, you know, perfect. So one thing that happened in the real world, 
I think I think this was this was a long time ago. I think this was in like 2015. 2015 is only Misery initially was going to be turned into a Broadway play like way before that. And Julia Roberts was slated to play Annie Wilkes, which would not have worked at all. No offense to Julia Roberts. Yeah, Stephen Stephen King had He vetoed the idea. Yeah, he was like, uh he said something along the lines of uh a brawny woman who can sling a guy around, not a pixie. Yeah, that's which exactly what he said. Yeah. I think that's also a blow at Julia Roberts for playing Tink in in hook <laughs> like back in the day so way to go king now we know that you've seen hook also really funny robin williams was considered to be the to be a potential candidate for uh for paul would not have worked yeah would not, would have, not worked. have worked i <laughs> would not have worked he would have turned it into a fucking comedy and it would not have worked but it came out in 2015 as a broadway adaptation with bruce willis and um laurie metcalf and I regrettably never saw it because no one would go see it with me. No, you know what? You know what? F that. I wanted to go see Misery on Broadway, just like I wanted to go see a one-man show of Macbeth with fucking Sir Alan Cumming, but, you know, no one wants to go see me that with me either. You know what? You know what, right? You know what? You don't, I mean, obviously it's fun to see it with friends, but go to the theaters yourself. You know, go by yourself and, like, you know, you can still have a good time. If you, if you, you know what? make a new friend because i <laughs> i feel like i would have had no self-control had i gone like alone i would have sat there on the edge of my seat looking like the embodiment of annie wilkes just like completely just like enamored and fangirling over what was happening on the it's like things like that i shouldn't go alone chris <laughs> no speak your truth go go for it because like i like like so uh i mean i admittedly i i missed out on things where i was once like that but like when pre-covid when there were uh, when you could actually go to an event and not worry about uh contracting coronavirus you know i would go to the movies a lot by myself because i just it was like it's like yeah obviously people are busy and I really want to see it. And it's like, shit, you know what? I'm just going to go by myself. And it was a good time. I thought about doing all of that because I just like, some of this stuff, I just like enjoy sharing it with so many people. Chris, if you and I ever end up living anywhere near each other. Yes, please find me like, like a nice, nice job in New York City where I can move. Because you know what would have happened if this was like not COVID times. You and I would have found a way to go see Willy's Wonderland together in theaters already. A hundred percent. Like if 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 we lived in an alternate timeline where let's say I've been living in New York City for like the last five years, which is something I still wish could happen. Um, you know what would have happened? You would call me up like like at midnight and and be like, yo. In, in in one hour, there's going to be a Nick Cage screening for Color Out of Space or Willy's Wonderland. You down, like, shit, yeah, I'm down. And then we would just meet up and then we'll watch the movie and then we'll get drunk and then go go eat, eat our weight in food from a halal food cart or some like 24-hour diner. And it'd be great. That's what I want to do. <laughs> okay, keep dreaming because we're going to yes. do this. We're going to keep Ride it. Ride or die. Gonna... Yes. <laughs> yes. That's 100%, 100%. All of this is to say is that I put, again, this is why I consider The Shining adaptation of a Stephen King novel, because you have movies like this as an example of what a real adaptation can like look like and be successful at. And it's so good. And it's, it's very successful. And Stephen King loves this adaptation, Well, which is another feather in the cap. 
I mean, he was also very concerned about Rob Reiner initially uh, doing adapting his work because he wasn't sure it would be executed to his vision. But then Stand By Me happened. And then Stephen King was like, exactly. oh, yeah, this guy, this exactly. guy gets exactly. it. So Exactly. He's like, he gets it. And I love when Stephen King just out, just very openly says how much he trusts a director with his work, considering his reaction to The Shining. So that's why if there, that's why I was so, I was so nervous for it when it came out. But when I heard that Stephen King put his stamp of approval on it, I got very excited. He even, he makes a cameo in the second one. So like that is, that's just, I mean, a bigger stamp in in my opinion. Like as a fan, like if you're willing to make a cameo in an adaptation of your own work because you're that much of a fan of what the director is doing to your work, I think that like that's, that is like the end all be all. Is that not what you need and want? And as a fan, that's something you really want to see. True, true facts. Uh, this is, I'm. I think that this is a, a major improvement from last week, and I'm really happy that you haven't completely lost faith. <laughs> I had so much more fun watching this movie than The Shining. Like, and like that's a, and you know, that's another thing that's great. I mean, that's another. That's also another thing about about misery like like i was ranting at how angry i was at the shining because it just put everything on front street in like the first 10 20 minutes so there wasn't really to me at least there wasn't really anything to feel apprehensive about but like the misery like you have this foreboding sense of dread and but it's like very muted and, and then it starts to creep on you when Paul wakes up in Annie's house and then you start to see like bits and pieces of what's unsettling about her like I'm your biggest fan or when she spills the soup on the blanket when she first freaks out when she's giving um uh feedback about the cursing uh, in his novel, and then it just escalates, and it's like, holy shit, this is great! Like it, it builds you up, and then, and then, and then it, it, and then at the climax, it just like it all releases, where it, it, bo- it comes to a head. We're like, oh my god, and he's gonna do something really, really terrible. Like, and if she does, she hobbles him. It's like that was great, and like I didn't with, with the Shining. It's it was a pinnacle of filmmaking, and it, I think it's a very beautiful film there's like a lot of a lot of pine a lot um you know performances were really intense and nuanced but like i didn't feel like it, it had its soul i um i thought it, it just looked pretty and um and like I, I feel like with misery it was uh i think it still looks great you know practical effects my god that the the ankle flopping uh in the opposite direction find out how they did that that's like my mission to like i i have to find out how they did that um and and, then, and i felt like it had a lot to say it, it had such a such an intense emotional core whether it's about substance abuse or toxic fandom or 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 it could be as surface level as this is a really terrifying story about a man trapped in or imprisoned and he can't escape i mean that's great too but it just makes you feel like all these intense feelings 
Um, and I think it had that the shining did it is it. I don't know. It just felt it just felt like alive, and it it felt like it had more of a message to say. It had. I, I feel like it translated more of what Stephen King wanted to just talk about. Um, I mean, whether it's about fandom or drug abuse or the pressures of artists and then and then the director and the writing team and the rest of the team like they elevated that message and they gave it a, a fresh coat of paint and you know i think they preserved it pretty well and i just didn't feel that way about the shining i, I felt like it was a soulless but very pretty aesthetically pleasing aesthetically interesting thing to consume but i didn't feel sated i didn't feel quenched after you know the credits rolled and I did with Misery. I, like, I felt, I was like, wow, that was a great movie. And like now I have all these thoughts and feelings and, and stuff I wanted to talk about. And I didn't have that no. same reaction. Talking with, with you about The Shining. Shining was, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it was kind of like pulling teeth because even though I think there was a certain level of, of recognition for The Shining as a movie, as a standalone movie, um, there was also just like a big struggle to find something kind to say about it as it relates to like the universe of Stephen King and Stephen King as its original creator. And I don't have that same relationship with Misery. As as we talk about toxic fandom in relation to this movie, there are, and I've, I've said this already in this episode, I'm very guilty of getting agitated with watching an adaptation on screen saying well that's not how it was in the book i've done it more times than i care to admit but like you don't hobble no no and you don't you don't send death threats you don't like but when it i mean that's that's what's part of being a fan you're passionate yeah it's coming from a for the most part good place i hope it's coming i i i hope it's coming from a good place but when i see things like this where they make a change but it's a change that makes sense then it doesn't bother me and i think it enhances the experience that you're having while you're watching this movie which is again just another uh check in the pro column as to why misery is a successful adaptation where the shining was not that being said what would you rate this uh i would give it five out of five misery novels uh i honestly didn't find anything wrong or anything i disliked about the film I think I think it's a very it's a very uh, well again full disclosure I haven't read the book but um at least according to what I've read and articles and reviews it's like I think it was like a very worthy adaptation um and I thought I think it's a, a genuinely enjoyable film and Kathy Bates kills it Yeah she really does she puts on an incredible performance one that I think sort of a, like immortalizes her forever, especially as it relates to horror and horror fans, which she may not have asked for, but she certainly got it. So I will give this five out of five hobblings. Like I loved it so much. I'll hobble you five times. <laughs> no, no, I only, no, not enough limbs. Stop it. On that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Everything helps. 
You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left 4 Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And thank you for listening. We're your biggest fans. And don't forget, stay, stay dreadful! dreadful. <laughs>